0: Welcome to Wisdom Truck with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain and we are on day 2134 of our track. The purpose of Wisdom Truck is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue with our extended series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week two of a 43-week series on the good news according to John the Apostle. John has a unique style and narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. It's word for ourselves, but we teach it to those that God has given us charge over. And that's certainly our kids and our grandkids and anyone that we meet. So I appreciate everyone being here this morning. and appreciate Sarah and the kids for participating and those that will be watching online a little bit later. Uh, do you want to remind everybody? If you happen to miss a service, we do have them posted on the church website and on our Facebook page. Um, the services each week, so you can always join us if you're not able to in person. And it's been an effective ministry for us. We do praise God for that. So let's get started on this second message out of the Gospel of John. As I mentioned last week, it's going to be an extended series of messages. Because John has a lot to say for us. This is the good news according to the gospel of John. The message will present Christ as the author of all creation. In John's prologue, the first 18 verses of chapter 1 are called the prologue to his gospel, to his good news. And it's broken down into four parts today. The word is eternal. He had no beginning and he will have no end in verses 1 and 2. The word is the creator of all things that were made through him verse 3. The word is the source of life. Nothing remains alive apart from him in verses 4 through 13. And the word, though completely human, fully reveals God the Father in verses 14 through 18. And before we examine these sections in detail, I want to read John chapter 1 verses 1 through 18. And I'm going to use the New Living Translation this morning. But if you want to follow along in your Bibles, it's on page 1645 and 1646 in the Pew Bibles. Some of the words will be a little bit different, but it'll be very similar. I think you can follow along. And take note of John's deliberate progression from infinity to eternity down to a single individual, Jesus Christ, whom resides all that is infinite and eternal. I would recommend, as always, to keep the passage open as we go through the message today. John chapter 1, verses 1-18. through 18. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is a true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created, but the world did not recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believe in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion and plan, but the birth comes from God. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and, he had, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one, But the unique one, who himself is God, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. This passage, as I was preparing this week, is hard to get our minds around. Because we're stuck in time and space. And everything we do is gauged by that time. All of our alarm clocks, all of our days are gauged by time. And we're stuck in this space we have not yet been able to create transporters to transport us from one place to another instantaneously like we see on Star Trek. We're stuck. And if we travel, we have to travel, make an effort to travel somewhere. But the Word is eternal. He had no beginning and he will have no end. An eternity past, before the beginning of everything, before space and time and matter, In the infinite expanse of that timeless existence, in the beginning, he who was in the beginning had no beginning. The Word was external to eternal, infinite presence. Now, the New Living Translation is a literal reading of John's first sentence, and that's why I use that uh, that version today. In the beginning, the Word already existed before time began. And why is that so important? Because John carefully crafted these initial sentences to establish an essential truth. His choice of words in this passage were carefully chosen and arranged, and then precisely to leave no room for any type of misunderstanding. Before any conceivable point in the past, the eternal past, the word already existed. The word, therefore, has no beginning, The word always existed. Later in this passage, in verse 14, we learn that that word was Jesus Christ. The Greek word for word is logos. And it's a profoundly significant concept among philosophers. And the philosophers talked about this logos, the word three centuries prior to Christ ever coming onto the scene. It referred to an uncreated divine mind that gives meaning and order to the universe. And John borrowed that concept from those philosophers and said, this is the word. Those concepts that pagan philosophers have theorized about actually exist. He is God, and Jesus Christ is he. Now, John describes the word by saying he was with God. When he used this particular manner, it's a Greek preposition prose that represents familiarity or a family. The Word and God, the Father, existed closely together, sharing place and intimacy and purpose. The intimacy and closeness were such that the Word was God. The Word and God share that same essence, and it's hard for us to get our minds around it because we're individuals But it's like a tight-knit couple, married couple that's been married for 70, 80 years, and their essence almost becomes as one. The essence of God and Jesus Christ, and as we know today, the Holy Spirit, is much closer than that essence could ever be. Therefore, all that is true of God is true of the Word. Now, Moses penned Psalm chapter 90, verses 1 and 2. We think of most of the Psalms as written by David, and a lot of them were, but Moses actually wrote, wrote Psalm chapter 90. In verse 1 and 2, he celebrates the eternal existence of God, who has no beginning unlike his own creation. Moses wrote, Lord, through all the generations, you have been our home. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world from beginning to end... You are God. Now, a good paraphrase way to render this is, imagine with me in your mind, if you can, from the vanishing point of the past, if you looked in the past until you could see no more, to the point in the future where you could see no more, Christ was there. God was there beyond anything that we can imagine at both points, and yet unaffected by either of those points of the past or the future. Time marks the beginning of created existence. That's what we understand it as. And because God never began to exist, it can have no application to him. Began is a time word. When something begins, we begin a period of time and we have no personal meaning. And that has no personal meaning for the high and lofty one who dwells in eternity. This is what John expresses about the Word. And then he underscores and summarizes to his point. John adds, He existed in the beginning with God. The eternal existence was before time, and the Word and God were together, and they were, in essence, the same being. Hard for us to understand. Verse 3, God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him, through the word. In verses 1 and 2, John states that the word is deity. And then he makes a case from the standpoint of time. Only God is eternal and only God, because the word is eternal, the word and God are one. In verse 3 the apostle establishes the deity of Christ from another perspective and that is the perspective of creation. In the ancient mind both the Hebrew and the Gentile categorized things everything into two categories: the created and the non-created. Everything not created, that is anything that was not brought into being is deity. For the Hebrews in particular only God was not created. And therefore, anything that was not created by definition is God. It's hard for us to grasp. It's hard for me to even explain. But why is it so important in this prologue for John? It's because false teachers starting in John's day and even before were persisting. And even now, they still claim that Jesus Christ is not God He's not co-eternal and he caught not coexistence with the Father in eternity past. Many claim that Christ was the first created being, and then Christ created everything else. But that's not what the word tells us. That's not what God's word tells us. Even from the third century, a false teacher named Arius found was fond of saying "There there was a time when he was not. And we think, well, that was in the past. But unfortunately, there's still groups, such as the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses, who have built that philosophy into their theology, that Christ was the first of all created beings, and then Christ created everything else. They've had, they've, those organizations have translated John, John's prologue into their own theology. And if you think that sounds like nonsense... It is. The Son of God could not have made himself. Therefore, he is God. And he created all things. Now, with this ancient worldview in mind, let us reread verse 3 carefully. God created everything through him. And nothing was created except through him. So, Christ, the word, could not have been created. John emphasizes the phrase created through him which he uses repeatedly throughout this prologue. Anything that was created through him had a beginning. At one point, it did not exist, and then it did exist. That's the very act of creation. And John takes us back to eternity past in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, to say that the Son of God already was existing prior to that very first act of creation. And with our understanding of a triune God, As more fully explained in the New Testament, all three elements were active in creation. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He brought everything into existence, into being. The Spirit hovered over the chaos of creation. As Christ, the Word, spoke creation into being. And you might wonder, as I often had, so I had to look it up today, or this week, the symbol on the front of our pulpit, The circle is a picture of eternity. There's no beginning. There's no end. It's forever. The three-sided triangle are the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then the cross in the middle is what we base our salvation on. Jesus Christ, the word that we're talking about today, are all symbolized in that emblem that we have on our pulpit. So as you look at that in the future now, think of that triune God who's everything from eternity past to eternity in the future. Let's move on to verse 4. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. John's gospel does something not done by the other synoptic gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew traces Christ's genealogy back to Abraham and then brings it forward. Luke traces Christ's genealogy clear back to Adam, the very first of all God's creation as humans, and brings it forward. John goes one step more. He reaches past that point of creation to the beginning of the universe, to beyond that, to eternity past. John states that Jesus Christ was the life and light. Two images that Moses wrote about when he penned the book of Genesis. The creator spoke the universe into existence, and it filled it with his light of his truth. And that can be found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. The creator then began filling the earth with life, vegetation, sea creatures, birds, land animals, and his crowning achievement, which is humanity. He finally breathed his own life into that man and woman. And this is where we get the concept of the Holy Spirit breathing, being breathed into that created being of Adam and Eve. And they were created as his imagers. John says, in effect, in the beginning, God the Son created humanity and filled them with life through that Holy Spirit. He then came to earth as a human being the Word came to earth to bring life again to humanity, which was spiritually dead to sin, because of sin. And while it's true that John did not specifically mention the fall of humanity that's written in Genesis chapter 3, it's safe to assume by the end of the first century it was common knowledge, the doctrine of human depravity, and it was well understood by those who John was writing to. Nevertheless, John did not highlight or did highlight our desperate need for salvation by describing the world's reaction to the appearance of light and life. John declares in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. Now, some of the other translations say it can't overcome it or it can't understand it or comprehend it. The primary meaning is to seize, to attack, to overpower or to hold without losing grip. However, as often happens when we translate things into our English language, the literal definition eventually becomes symbolic of that use. The darkness cannot ever extinguish that light. The darkness did not overpower the light. Nothing can stop that light from shining. Nothing can extinguish it like we would extinguish a fire. And in the end, the darkness could not be diminished Darkness could not diminish the light, even by placing the light in a tomb, yet that light shined forth from that tomb. The verses that follow appear to stress a mental deficiency of that darkness. And that's why some of the translations say they could not understand or comprehend it. It's an unwillingness to believe, and therefore it's an inability to be illuminated by that light then as the story of Jesus unfolds, John will show us the truth, that it, the truth is, it's nonsense that the mind is darkened by sin. In verses 6 through 8, if we move on, John the baptizer, the man Jesus called the greatest of all prophets in Matthew chapter 11, was no match for that darkness. John could not extinguish, or could, John could not be the light himself. Neither could Moses, Samuel, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and all the other luminaries of the world. Throughout the centuries before John the Baptizer, they all failed to enlighten humanity fully. After all, they were only human. Therefore, the only hope for humankind was that very source of light. who can illuminate every mind because he was more than human. Yes, he was fully human, but he was more than human. Verse 9, the one who is the true light gives light to everyone, and he was coming into the world, as Sarah and every so elegantly portrayed. As the flashlight represents Jesus Christ, he came in the world to shine uh, his light in the world, and that light can never be extinguished. It would be like having batteries that would never run out, could never be extinguished, because that light was the light to the world. And when Moses wrote down the creation story in Genesis, he drew upon that literary symbol of light that communicates an important concept of truth. Immediately after forming space and matter, at the beginning of creation, the Lord filled that void and formless earth with light. If you've ever studied Genesis chapter 1, light was the first thing. He separated the light from the darkness. But that was before the sun, the moon, and the stars were created. That light was the very essence of the Word, Jesus Christ himself. He communicated this truth. Before he fashioned the physical sources of light, the sun, the moon, and the stars that we see as light today, He filled the universe with light. On the fourth day, he created those. But he filled the universe with light, of his presence, with the truth, his truth, the very foundation which everything else was created from was that light, that truth that God contained within himself. And it was manifested through Jesus Christ. It was the foundation of everything else that the world would be built. Before giving the world order, that is the beginning of fixed time as we know it, the time of dividing the light from the darkness, the time before dividing the sun and the sky and the earth and the land from the oceans, the Lord infused or suffused all of creation down to the very atoms with his light and his life. That was the very act of creation that would reflect his character. These creative actions were the beginning of what we refer to in the Star Trek world as the space-time continuum. Before we have space or time that we are locked in by, God created the world. Now, if you remember, Christ, after his resurrection, was no longer confined by that space-time continuum that we're confined by. He has suddenly appeared through locked doors. And that will be our regenerated bodies in all eternity, to what Christ's body was at that point. One day, it could be soon, or it might be centuries from now, God will recreate that original Eden that he first created. However, this time the plan will not be delayed because he had a purpose with that plan, and that's through Jesus Christ to become the word, the very essence of God on earth. It will be a time where that global Eden, where heaven and earth are finally combined as one. And we will work, and we will rule, and we will reign in the presence of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. In the new Eden, will require no sun, no moon, or no stars, because God will illumine them, as we're told in Revelation chapter 22, verse 5. Evil will be gone, and all creation again will reflect what we're told in John's letter that he wrote before his gospel, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, he wrote, God is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. And that is the light that we'll experience for all of eternity as we come into that global Eden. John chapter nine 1, verses 9 through 13 can be troublesome at first glance. It would seem sort of to contradict some of the other verses, but it says, the word, or the one who is the true light who gives light to everyone, is coming into the world. And that was a picture of Jesus Christ. In the future message in John chapter 15, we'll look at this in more detail, but John's point becomes more apparent. Now that the source of light has come to the earth and has illuminated the minds of all humanity, no one can legitimately say they are ignorant of that fact. All who do not believe are without excuse. That is why, before his arrest, Jesus told his disciples in John 15, verses 22 through 25, they would not be guilty if I had not come and I'd spoken to them. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Anyone who hates me also hates the Father. If I hadn't done such miraculous signs among them that no one else could do, they would not be guilty. But as it is, they have seen everything I did. Yet, they still hate me and my Father. This fulfills what, the script, what was written in the Scriptures. They hated me without cause. Let me illustrate John's point in a different way. Every modern house is connected to the, little, the electric grid, just like we are here today. If I turn the power off the source of light, it goes dark. But that source of light is here for us to take advantage of any time we choose to, by a flip of the switch. But we have enough energy, especially in our country, to illuminate every dark corner of our homes. However, when we live in our homes, we have to choose whether to use that source of energy or not, or choose to live in darkness. The light is available, but it's not compulsory. The source of the light has come into the world that we're talking about today, and has illuminated everyone's mind However, many choose to draw the shades of their mind and shun that light. Now that Christ has come, belief or unbelief is no longer a crisis of intellect, saying, Well, I was ignorant of that fact. That's not an excuse, if it ever was. Now it's a crisis of our own will or our own choice. When a darkened mind chooses to remain in darkness, no one is to blame except the individual making that choice themselves. Now, many have rejected that light, but the good news is that many have received it through faith, the choice to believe in Jesus Christ. John foreshadows this teaching of Christ in John chapter 3, which we'll get to in a subsequent message, by declaring that those who have chosen to believe are children of God. And as a result of this supernatural birth from above, we compare it to a natural birth, which is a result of two humans making a choice to pre- procreate. By contrast, that spiritual birth is the result of God's sovereign choice to send the word into the world. And as we move on to 14 through 18, the true na- truth of Christ's dual nature, that unblemished deity and his complete humanity, are revealed. It's essential theology. It's a crucial practice Practical sense as well. John's gospel reminds me of an important truth. When I am tempted to shake my fist at God and say, you're unkind, you're cruel to those that are ill or lose their lives prematurely, especially children who suffer on earth, we have to remember this fact, that when Adam brought sin into the world and death with sin... We are told, as we're told in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, the Lord could have incinerated the world and said, eh. we'll start over. But he chose not to because he had a more divine plan to send the word into the world. Our individual sins even, or our collective sins as a congregation or as the world itself, as humans, God could have every right even today to say, fine. Run the world your way. The mess you make of it will be yours to bear. But he doesn't. He didn't. On the contrary, the Creator voluntarily became one of us in the person of Jesus Christ, who suffered as we will suffer, who was tempted as we are tempted, and who will endure injustices unlike anything that we'll ever know. And yet he did it without sin. So I'm comforted with this with understanding that God understands me and empathizes with me. It was through his incarnation that we can appreciate his compassion more fully because he lived and died as a human being. And he can more easily understand and accept that because of his resurrection. The son is for us. Even when we feel abandoned and mistreated or punished by God, the word was completely human but yet he fully revealed the Father. He was completely divine. And John's terminology was boldly offensive to those false teachers of his day when he says, in effect, the word became meat, or some translations, the word became flesh. That was offensive to some of those false teachers, but he lived among us in the material world. He 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 clothed himself with the robe of flesh. those that were with him at the time of Christ could literally see him, hear him, and touch him. In 1 John, again, the letter he wrote before his gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, the apostle puts it in absolute terms. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have seen and heard. We saw him with our own eyes. We touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. Now, the Old Testament you think, well, Christ came at a certain point of time, but God wasn't abstract even in the Old Testament. He revealed himself in several ways. Through dreams and visions, through supernatural fire in the midst of a bush, through that otherworldly glow above the Ark of the Covenant, and even at times he took on a physical manifestation of a human being and revealed himself to others. That's called a theophany, where Christ became Man, prior to his full incarnation. Those times were not the same, though, as when God fully became human from conception to death. A flesh, blood, and bone human being who could be seen and heard and touched and even smelled. The Son of God became a tangible representation of God, the Father, in all of his glory. The Son of God became man. If we have trouble understanding God the Father, we need only to look at God the Son for all we and that's all we need to know. And it's summarized in verse 14, so the word became human or flesh and made his home or tabernacled among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness and we have seen his glory the glory of the Father's one and only son. But people might ask, always wonder, what is God like? And throughout Jesus' 30-plus years of ministry on earth, you could have seen and touched that physical representation, physical representation of his presence. Jesus conducted his ministry in Galilee and Samaria and Judea, Judea. But to this day, people struggle to know who God is and what he's like. But we, as citizens of God's kingdom, can point to Jesus Christ and say, you want to know what God's like? He was fully manifested in Jesus Christ, to get to know him, and you will get to know God. Now, I put in the bulletin insert for today five qualities of authentic faith. And this is five qualities that we can have as a genuine believer from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. First, a genuine believer is not too independent to admit their own needs. Now, throughout John's narrative, those who needed healing, forgiveness, and enlightenment understood their helplessness and came to Christ for help. Now while pride may may have kept some people trapped in their sins, others exposed their vulnerability and allowed Jesus to perform miracles in their lives. Trust in the Lord should translate to our vulnerability to each other, knowing that we need that intimacy with each other to trust the Lord enough to expose our weaknesses and our inadequacies that we can enjoy the intimacy with one another, that we can enjoy their blessings to us and in turn become blessings to them. The second, a genuine believer is not too busy to know the people around them. People, not task, are the priorities for us as believers. Living out our faith and truth, authentic trust in Christ recognizes the value of others. If we ever look down on someone else, we're not treating them as one of God's children. Because despite their sh- failures, their shortcomings, we need to devote adequate time to know others well. Thirdly, the genuine believer isn't too proud to rely on God's word. Most churchgoers do their best to live a life according to what the scriptures that they know. But genuine faith, hungers and thirst after more of God's knowledge, hungers about as God's word as, as possible because it doesn't trust himself in their frailties. Genuine trust in Christ remains humbly devoted to knowing what he thinks about his life and how he, we should live our lives through him. Fourth, the genuine believer doesn't rely solely on their own perspective. Genuine believers have no trouble admitting that they can't trust their own sinful nature. And they'll do whatever is necessary to nullify that influence in making, when making decisions. They seek the truth of God's word. They pray for the Holy Spirit's leading. They submit to the wisdom of wise counselors. And they remain sensitive to the constructive criticism of others, even when those others happen to be our enemies. And fifth, a genuine believer doesn't take self or, take self or life too seriously. That's not to suggest that life isn't serious and even dismal at times. Life in a fallen world can be challenging. We all know that. Nevertheless, genuine believers maintain a loose grip on those that they love around them which is difficult at times, and we take an even looser grip of those possessions that we have. We accept the injustices and abuses and the setbacks as confirmation that we're on that road to glory. We maintain a composed perspective and refuse to allow bitterness to spoil our soul. Our outlook should be one that where we choose joy and we never pass up an opportunity for a good old belly laugh because that helps us to deal with the other sufferings we have in life. Not we should make light of everything, but man, take time to laugh. Take time to enjoy the absurdities of life you sat in the office with Paula and I during the week, you would hear us laughing a lot at the stupid things that we do because they're funny. And we can laugh with each other realizing that we're just humans. And life is worth living because of what Christ did for us. Believers can do this when they genuinely trust in God and His unfailing goodness and His utter sovereignty. Of course, genuine belief in Jesus Christ has eternal implications. He came to seek and save those that were lost. He came to receive those to himself and to enjoy our worship forever. But genuine faith also has profound implications for life here on earth. And it's an abundant life. Jesus Christ in John chapter 10 verse 10 says, I came to give you a rich and satisfying life. Let's live that way today. As we look at the eternal word, it's hard for you to get our minds around it, but that's what Jesus Christ is, the eternal word. He was before the beginning of creation and will be to all of eternity. And that's the lesson we wanted to learn today. And next week, we'll learn about a man sent from God. And we all know that's John the Baptizer. So I'd encourage you to read John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34 in preparation for next week's message. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the word who became flesh and dwell among us. Thank you that the light can never be extinguished, but always shining in our hearts. Help us to shine that light to other people who want to know who God is. We can know who God is through your son, Jesus Christ, who was a perfect imager of God, who never sinned. We thank you for this as in our example and our Savior, Father. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. and As we take this trek of life together, Let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's word.